0: And encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and, in a way, show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria. I'm your host, Dale Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to uh, live and grow in our faith a little bit more each week. Archbishop Sheen is teaching us on the sacraments, and uh, last week we had a beautiful lesson on baptism. And uh, this week, uh, Archbishop Sheen will talk about the uh, Sacrament of Confirmation, And, you know, it's funny, Um, you know, many of us, of course, have received instruction. Uh, I can't say that I gave my undivided attention to my catechist, but, you know, it's nice to listen to Archbishop Sheen teach us the faith, and uh, what I love about technology is that you can replay a lesson uh, if you miss something. And um, Archbishop Sheen, back in 1965, uh, put together the 50-lesson catechism series, and and recorded on vinyl, and of course today with technology, we have it all in digital downloads, so uh, you can enjoy the whole series, and it's called the Sheen Catechism, and I highly recommend everyone get a copy of the Sheen Catechism, because he really does teach the faith uh, in a beautiful way that um, is relatable, and you know, Archbishop Sheen's convert classes, he, uh, people would sign up in the I want to just say hundreds. Uh, he'd have these large auditoriums where he'd give convert classes, and of course has hundreds of thousands of converts to his record. So uh, people weren't afraid to learn the faith, and especially in the hands of this great teacher. And so the lesson today is on confirmation. Uh, but we'll begin the program with uh, a lighter presentation, uh, of course, Sheen's "Life Is Worth Living" show. Uh, and the episode we're going to share is, Why is Work So Boring? Uh, haven't we heard that before uh, from uh, some people saying, you know, work is so boring? But, you know, he he wanted to say to us, um, there's more to this. Um, again, there are solutions. And um, I think I'll leave it uh, to Archbishop Sheen to share with us today the answer to that dilemma. And so, without further ado, may I present to you the Venerable Archbishop Sheen, from his Life is Worth Living television series as he uh, explains to us why work is so boring. Please enjoy.
1: Friends, our story of the week from children is concerned with a little girl who moved from LaGrange, Illinois to Guthrie City Center, Iowa, and it seems that in the course of the moving, she lost her Girl Scout cap a little brownie cap. And the family searched through the garrets and the closets and the boxes and were unable to find it. And one night, the little girl looking at television saw me, and she ran to her mother, and she says, Mommy, I found my cap. Bishop Sheen has it. (laughs) When the mother wrote and told me this, I autographed a zucchetto, a yarmulke, I autographed the amica to her and sent it to her, but I want to tell you that's the only one that I will send, regardless of who loses his or her hat. (laughs) We promised tonight to talk about work. I probably could talk much better on overwork. You remember what Jerome K. Jerome said about work? He said it positively fascinates me. I could sit and look at it all day. (laughs) Some people work like a horse all day and then they want to hit the hay at night. (laughs) We will tell you, first of all, about the nature of work and then what is happening to it today. What the Russians think about it. Finally, how it can be less boring. First of all, the nature of work. An animal works, for example, we speak of working like a beaver or busy as a bee. Now, what is the difference between the work of an animal and the work of a man? And what is the same in both? First of all, they are alike in the fact that that there is a result produced. For example, a dam in the case of a beaver. A chair in the case of a man. But there is this difference. In man there is an intention. Man has a reason and a will made to the image of God. And he leaves the impress of his work on what he does. An animal operates only by instinct, not by freedom and reason. For example, in the building of a cathedral, a stone is cut, that is the result produced. The intention, the building of an edifice, to honor and glorify God. Piece of art. Take, for example the marvelous statue of Moses, done by Michelangelo. The result produced the statue, the intention to glorify the great Hebraic lawgiver. Incidentally, when he finished that statue, he felt that it was so perfect that he took his chisel and he struck the base of it, saying, Speak! A farmer produces results, namely his crops, his intention... To intensify his knowledge of farming, to help him live virtuously, and also to weigh the common good. Now we come to industrial work. There's a tremendous amount of work that is done in this world that is boring. It is nothing but dull, dreadful repetition. For example, the screwing in of a bulb on a conveyor belt as a machine passes by. This routine is deadening. Years after years, identically the same detail is fulfilled. The intention, the development of personality, the production of social good is almost lost. So that men feel, well, I just work in order to live, that's all, not to perfect myself. They're putting, for example, a nut on a bolt that goes into the spring, that goes into the chassis, that goes into the auto. And when it's finished, it's pretty hard for them to see just what they've done. They say, well, what good does it do? Like the poor chickens, they lay the eggs, and then the eggs are taken away, they're put in an incubator. <laughs> Terrific specialization of work. Like the little gosling that I knew. So well, I'm going to show you a picture of this little gosling. Uh, it seems as if a New York State trooper found this egg, and he brought it to the Redemptorists here in New York, and one of the Redemptorists' fathers made a, a homemade incubator and hatched out a gosling. Now, a peculiar thing about a gosling is that he will very often attach himself to the very first thing that he sees when he comes out of the egg. So the first thing they saw were just simply a number of, uh, a number of Redemptorists, a number of priests. So from that time on, the gosling would associate only with men. I went up there to their house to make a retreat. I would go out walking in the afternoon. Little Louis the gosling, would come after me. <laughs> I will show you a picture of little Louie. See he has on the signature? They dressed him up exactly like a bishop. And one afternoon, I took Louis down with the geese. Louis wouldn't associate with the geese. He didn't know geese. And so it is with modern work, such tremendous specialization, that today two results follow. First of all, work is boring. I mean that kind of work. And the reason that kind of work is boring is simply because man was made to leave the impress of his character on matter. He was to impress nature in some particular way just as a man loves to whittle take clay and mold it raising of children he has an image in himself the image of god and he wants to put his own image in matter but when he does the same thing over and over again he's unable to do it the result is therefore that there is a conflict as you see between nature which wishes to do something that is truly individual and our present mechanical civilization, which does nothing but standardize. And the result is that labor is a grudge and a bore. No wonder people are sick and tired. of it. Even leisure is. In the sense that it's mechanized, and two or three thousand people will sit in a the theater and look at exactly the same thing and enjoy the same emotions. Not only is this kind of labor boring, but there's also another effect, and that is that because man cannot see what he is doing, because he cannot see a purpose, because he cannot see how his personality is perfected by his work, he becomes subject to the economic. In other words, today in the economic order, man is for production. That is not good. That is not sound. Man is not for production. Production is for man. So we've come to believe that everything must be subordinated to the economic. Have 11 children, enough to buy only 10 hats, cut off the head of the 11th child. <laughs> the economic is primary. Man becomes subordinate to economic conditions. Coffee is thrown into the ocean, milk spilled, grain stored, bananas thrown into the sea, and two-thirds of the people of the world are going to bed hungry every night. And why? Simply because man has been made a slave of the economic, and production has come first. Not the human. And incidentally, it is this that has spread the revolutionary spirit and economic order among the workers. Much more than a tension between capital and labor. Far deeper than that, and few have seen it. And if man revolts, it is simply because he knows that he has a destiny, that he was not made for the economic and for production, that production and the economic were made for him. He's the noblest thing on earth. Not a price, not a profit, not some anonymous organization to which he belongs. And the logic of all of this is Russia. Here, of course, with our mechanized civilization, man is economically free. Not as economically free as he should be. He's free to sell his labor. He's politically free. But notice the logic of communism. Communism comes along and says, let man live for work alone. Remember we had in discussion of work two ideas. One, the result which was produced. And the other, the development of human personality. Man's intention and image going into work. The communists have said, let us destroy personality. There's no God. There's no divine image in man. There's no spirit, there's no soul. There's only work. Produce, produce, produce. It is well to realize that hidden, deep in the modern world as men lose their belief in God, is a readiness to surrender political and economic freedom for bread or for what is called security. Dostoevsky in the last century saw this coming in Russia and in one of his great works, Brothers Karamazov, He pictures the devil coming back and tempting Christ again. The regime of communism is on the face of the earth. And the devil speaks to Christ about turning stones into bread, which our blessed Lord refused to do in the mob, And Satan then describes how under his regime they will get millions to follow them, to follow a dictator because they give bread. And how they will even mechanize their leisure. And finally, how they will persecute the devil now speaks to Christ, who in this book of Dostoevsky, never answers the temptation. We shall persuade them, says the devil, that they will only become free when they renounce their freedom to us and submit to us. Turn those stones into bread. And mankind will run after thee, Christ, like a flock of sheep. Grateful and obedient, though forever trembling, lest thou withdraw thy hand and deny them their bread. Dost thou not know, O Christ, that the ages will pass, and humanity will proclaim by the lips of their sages that there is no crime? There is no sin. There is only hunger. How those days are on us now. In the end, they will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, make us slaves. But feed us. In their leisure hours, we shall make their life like a child's game, with children's songs and innocent dances. We shall even allow them their sin, and they will love us like children, because we allow them their sin. We shall allow them or forbid them to live with their wives and their mistresses to have or not to have children, according to whether they have been obedient or disobedient to us, and they will submit to us. What I say to thee, O Christ, will come to pass. And our dominion will be built up over the world. I repeat, tomorrow thou, Christ, shall see that obedient flock what a sign from me will hasten to heap up hot cinders about the pile on which I shall burn thee for coming to hinder us. For if anyone has ever deserved our fires, it is thou. Tomorrow I shall burn thee. Dixie, I have. That's the logic of work without a soul. The logic of the primacy of the economic and the subservience of the human. What's the answer? Destroy the machine? Our industrial civilization? Certainly not these things are blessings. We must keep them and preserve them. Which of our happiness would be lost to this world... We did away with all of our technological progress. What then is the answer? The answer is twofold. One economic and the other spiritual. The economic answer is to begin to dignify the worker. How can he be dignified? by restoring his responsibility, by making him feel that he's contributing to something that is his own, by giving him a sense of responsibility. And that will be done by giving the workers some share in either the profits or management, or ownership of industry. Not all the profits. Capital must have its just share. Let the government give up some of the excess profit taxes so they will not be spent through bureaucracies. Let some of that be given to those who help produce a social good... And our social wealth. Then both shall have a share. Both shall be dignified. Today in our economic order, one is always asked, are you for capital? Are you for labor? Why be asked that question whether we are for capital or labor? Capital and labor are classes, and no class is always right. We have suffered a great deal in the past from capital, and we could suffer a great deal from labor. And instead of being for either capital or labor, we be for both. Just like asking which is the more important, the right or the left leg of a man. Both. Let them work together. Producing the common goods. And social wealth. Then man will have a sense of dignity and let that share which is given to him not be readily negotiable. So that he will always have a sense of responsibility in the place where he works. Then the other way to sanctify work and to save it from being a drudgery is to do it with the divine intention. We have a mind. We can do different things for different reasons. Like dropping money in a cup just to be seen. Giving it simply because we see Christ in the poor. There isn't any work in the world that cannot be sanctified. Everything. Raising a sound boom making a table, sweeping floors, threading needles, working at the routine machines an aeroplane and automobile factories, all of these can be sanctified and made a prayer, provided they are offered up with a divine intent. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do it in the name of the God who made you. We all have to do work that is unpleasant, but it becomes pleasant. When we love someone, do it out of love. We do it for the love of God. And then we'll understand, those who would like to have a Christ proclaimed as the patron of the workers, that this is not just the answer. And those who say that Christ, the worker, is the friend of the laborer, quite forgets that the capital ought to have a friend, too. And our blessed Lord was not just a carpenter. He was not just a poor man. Our blessed Lord was a rich man who became poor. For being rich, he became poor for our sakes. Our blessed Lord was, as it were, a capitalist who became a laborer. Let us not forget that this worker who fixed the flat roofs of Nazarene homes was also the one from whose fingertips their tumbled planets and worlds. Let us not forget that he who labored in a carpenter shop was also the very one who carpentered the universe itself. Therefore, he is the bond that will bring capital and labor together, restore the dignity of man, for he's the only one in the world of whom both capital and labor can say, he came from our ranks. He is one of our own. No work is ever degrading. It is only workmanship that can be degrading. Every work in the world is noble, if it is done out of love for God. Bye now. God love you.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. You can see how Archbishop Sheen was speaking up for the worker, he was trying to defend their rights Uh, he mentioned about profit sharing and how everybody needs to participate um, as best they can and so uh, he was touching a nerve Uh, back in the 50s again there was uh, a number of injustices uh, being uh, done i guess in the workforce in the sense of um, you know there's that whole thing of fear and greed but uh, still, I think Fulton Sheen knew, uh, there was a way to do it better, and of course he would introduce the concept of profit sharing, uh, which of course is, uh, used today in many businesses, so, uh, again, it's just this idea that Archbishop Sheen is trying to defend, um, I'd li- like to say sometimes the little guy <laughs> to, uh, involve them in the process, so, uh, God love Archbishop Sheen for his defense, uh, of the worker, And, of course, trying to encourage us to uh, be of good cheer. All right, we're talking about the catechism together. And uh, last week we spoke about baptism. And I say we, but it's uh, more Archbishop Sheen. I'm just the host. I I greet you. I (laughs) send you on your way. But uh, I push the play button, and that's very important so you can enjoy these recordings. Uh, But this week it's about confirmation. And again, uh, looking forward to this reflection. Uh, Last week I recommended the book, uh, Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, and it's available through Sophia Institute Press, and I may encourage you to pick up this book because it actually has two books in one. Uh, The 1951 book, Three to Get Married, and the 1962 book, These are the Sacraments, so A great uh, resource uh, manual to have in your home. And again, it's titled Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, available through Sophia Institute Press. Uh, Their website is SophiaInstitute.com. And they're offering us a 25% discount uh, when you use the promo code SHEEN25. And, uh, again, there's a very generous discount. And it's available to all the books that they carry. So uh, it doesn't matter if it's Archbishop Sheen's writings or another popular author. Uh, they're extending the 25% discount to us by using, again, the promo code at checkout, Sheen25. All right. Let's, uh, again, enjoy this um, these reflections, and there's 50 of them in this Catechism series, and uh, I think this is number 27, Uh, but still, it's about the Sacrament of Confirmation, so I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy uh, Archbishop Sheen as he teaches us the faith. Please enjoy.
1: Peace be to you. The greatest untapped reservoir of spiritual power is to be found in the Christian laity. It is mainly through the laity that the Church enters into the world. Laymen and lay women are the meeting place of the Christian and the non-Christian. They are the bond between the sacred and the profane, the religious and the sacred. The laity fulfills his Christian vocation in the world. When he comes to church, he receives life and truth and grace. but He receives them for service. Service in the world. And in the world, this Christian truth and grace and life of his comes into an encounter with other men who may lack it or certainly its richness. A Christian vocation is the exercise of the ordinary manifestations of life in such a way that the glory of God is made manifest. There is, of course, a twofold danger. One is that on the one hand the Christian laity may form a kind of a ghetto. That is to say, consider their religious activities to be confined only within the church and keeping the commandments, then Christians huddled together in the kind of an igloo, completely divorcing faith and action. The other extreme would be to become so worldly that they can do nothing with it. Now the result of this separation is that, I mean the separation of religion and the world, is that culture has emancipated itself from Christ and become demonic. The laity are to be effective. They have to do three things. First of all, they have to be conscious of the fact that they are members of the people of God. They belong to a worshipping community. And then secondly, they must be theologically literate. St. Peter said they should be able to give a reason for the faith that is in them. And then thirdly, they must communicate with the world as Christians, as Christians. They are involved with the world. As John Donne so beautifully put it, no man is an island, entire and of itself, Every man is a piece of a continent, a part of the main. If a cloud be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if the manners of friends of thine own house were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. No one, therefore, can expect to fulfill his Christian vocation or attain any kind of personal integrity in the modern world who is not at home with computers, with slums, with races, with world affairs, with everything where the gospel intersects the world, it is the laity who stand at that point. As the cross stood at the intersection of the cultures and the civilizations of Athens, Jerusalem, and Rome, the laity cross all frontiers, and they do this in the name of Christ. As we see the laity come into church on Sundays, we ask them, do they really love one another? Are they a unified element in the community? Are they coming together just to fulfill an obligation, trying to avoid immortal sin, rather than to come and strengthen and feed a life which they ought to spread? Are they seeking a kind of selfish sanctification forgetful that our blessed Lord said, for their sakes do I sanctify myself? Will they be very much like everyone else that is around them, except for just this weekly habit of coming to church? When others look at this band of the faithful, Will they think, I ought to be like them, I ought to have their love and their truth and their inner peace? Too often it's just the opposite. So the laity, therefore, will have to come to a comprehension that our blessed Lord was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but in the world, on a roadway, in a town garbage heap, at the crossroads where there were languages written upon the cross. Yes, they were Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, but they could just as well have been English, or Bantu, or Afrikaans. It would make no difference. He placed himself at the very center of the world, in the midst of smut, and thieves, and soldiers, and gamblers, and he was there to extend pardon to them. This is the vocation of the laity. To make Christ known in the world. If then it be granted that the laity must go in the world, where will they find their power, their wisdom, and their courage in order to be witnesses to Christ? If they are just left of their own power, they would be as weak as the apostles were. Nine of them away from the garden, and three in the garden sleeping. Since over and above the natural life there is a divine or supernatural life, there should be a sacrament, some visible sign by which they contact the power and the merits of Christ. Some kind of channel that will pour away from Calvary. Down into their own souls to make them strong. Just go back now into the natural order and you will recall that for a living, one, a person must be born. Secondly, he must grow to maturity, he must assume the responsibilities of the society in which he lives. Since over and above the natural life there is a divine or supernatural life, one we must be born to that divine supernatural life, and that is the sacrament of baptism. And then we have to grow into the supernatural life. And the sacrament that inducts us into this higher supernatural life is the sacrament of confirmation. We are born spiritually in one sacrament become a citizen of the kingdom of God and in the other we are drafted into God's spiritual army and into the lay priesthood of believers. Confirmation, like any other sacrament, is modeled upon the life of our blessed Lord. Our Lord had a double priestly anointing corresponding to two aspects of his life. First was the Incarnation. And that made him capable of being a victim for our sins because in the incarnation he took upon himself a body, a human nature with which he could suffer and therefore redeem us from our sins. As God, he could not suffer. As man, he could. And this first aspect of the life of our blessed Lord culminated in his passion and death and resurrection. Now there was another aspect of his life, a second anointing, as it were, and that was the coming of the Holy Spirit in the Jordan. And that ordained him for the mission of preaching, the apostolate. And this reached its culmination, of course, as far as the Church was concerned, in Pentecost, Coming back to the life of our blessed Lord, the descent of the Holy Spirit on our Lord in the Jordan had a double effect on our Lord. First, it prepared him for combat, for battle, militancy. This is what the Gospel states. Jesus returned from the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and by the Spirit he was led out into the wilderness where he remained forty days, tempted by the devil. Just as soon as he received the Holy Spirit, he entered into the battlefield, the conflict with Satan, who offered him the three easy ways from the cross. The Holy Spirit did something else. Not only prepared him for combat. It also prepared him for preaching the kingdom of God. When our blessed Lord therefore appeared at Nazareth, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me, sent me out to preach the gospel to the poor, to restore the brokenhearted, to bid the prisoners go free, and the blind to have sight to set the oppressed at liberty, to proclaim a year when men find acceptance in the Lord. Now after our blessed Lord had received the Spirit and fulfilled these two missions, he had instituted a sacrament, the sacrament of confirmation, by which this power and energy and strength of being a soldier of Christ and a witness to Christ in the kingdom of God passes into our souls. The ordinary minister of this sacrament is the bishop. Though, in cases of extreme necessity, for example, illness and the like, a pastor may administer the sacrament. One about to be confirmed kneels before the bishop, who extends his hands and prays. Almighty everlasting God, who has deigned to beget a new life, and this thy servant by water and the Holy Spirit, and has granted him remission of his sins, send forth from heaven upon him thy Holy Spirit, with the sevenfold gifts. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. Amen. The spirit of counsel and fortitude. Amen. The spirit of knowledge and piety. Amen. Fill him with the spirit of the fear of the Lord, and seal him with the sign of Christ's cross. Plenteous in mercy unto life everlasting. Through the same self, same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God eternally. Amen. Then the bishop dips his thumb in holy chrism and anoints the forehead of the one to be confirmed, saying. First of all, he gives the name. Then, I confirm thee with the chrism of salvation, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When he says these words, he makes the sign to the cross. Then he gives the one confirmed, a slight blow on the cheek, saying, Peace be to you. Now the reason the slight blow on the cheek is given is in order to remind the one who is confirmed that he must be prepared to suffer all things for the sake of Christ. This sacrament may be received only once because it leaves an indelible mark upon the soul. So does the sacrament of baptism and also the sacrament of holy orders because it may be received only once, as we may only grow into maturity once in the natural order, there are many who neglect this inspiration. In order to make it very concrete, let us recall a very interesting story in the Old Testament. Remember the ancient prophet went to visit a widow woman whose sons were about to be sold in slavery because she had no money. This prophet was Elisha. And Elisha asked, what do you have in the house? She said, just a little oil. He told her to go out and borrow vessels from the neighbors, all empty vessels. When they were gathered, he told her to begin pouring out the little oil that she had into the empty vessels. She began pouring, but the oil did not stop. And she filled one vessel, then another, and another, and another, until finally she said to her son, give me yet another vessel. The sun says, there is no more. And the oil stopped. Now, the oil in sacred scripture very often corresponds to the Holy Spirit. And the lesson, therefore, is that the spirit of Christ that we receive depends also upon our emptiness. And the increase of that power from the moment that we receive the sacrament also depends upon our capacity to respond to Christ. There is no limit to God's love. There is no limit to his power to bless. He gives in an overflowing measure, far beyond our expectations, far beyond our deservings. We may stint the blessings for ourselves, by not being in a fit state to receive them. We constantly see in the history of the Church where many blessings are forthcoming, just provided we would de egotize ourselves. And therefore the power of the laity to bear witness to Christ, to be his soldiers in the world, depends upon their humility, their emptiness, then there's yet another lesson. There was once a Sunday school teacher who came before an empty room and he said, where is the class? He could not see anyone to teach. And the priest said to him, you will have to go out and gather a class. He did so a little exertion in the streets, and he had a class. So there are empty vessels all around us, they can be filled with the love of Christ. Any empty vessels in your home, among your neighbors, if you are a lawyer you know empty vessels in your profession and as a doctor, as a nurse? Are there not many whose lives are aimless and destitute? I recently heard of a lawyer who died in Berlin. He was an unbeliever. He had a Catholic partner, a lawyer, and when his friend became ill, the Catholic lawyer visited him and said, now that you are about to die, do not you think you ought to make your peace with God? And the dying partner said to him, he said, if Christ in your church has meant so little to you during your life that you never once spoke to me about it? How can it mean anything to me at my death? A serious realization, therefore, of the sacrament of confirmation will make one seek to save souls. And if we save a soul, we have a very good chance of saving our own. Confirmation is the great social sacrament. It binds us to the world, to our neighbor, to humanity. It binds us not only to love God, but to love even those people who are seemingly unlovable. What does identification mean? I can tell you what it means by telling you how I failed. I visited a leper colony in Africa where there were about 500 lepers. I brought with me 500 small silver crucifixes, one for each of the lepers. first leper who came to meet me had his left arm off at the elbow, He held the stump of the arm up and around the shoulder was a rosary. He extended to me his right hand. I never saw such a mass of putrid, foul, noisome corruption as I saw in that leprous hand. I held out the silver crucifix above it. And then... I dropped it. It was almost swallowed up in that volcano of leprosy. I took this symbol of Christ's love for man. This symbol of God's identification was suffering humanity and I refused to identify myself with one who was perhaps bearing on his body, less putrefaction than I had in my own soul. And at that particular moment, there were 501 lepers in the camp, and I, I was the 501st and the worst of all, because I refused to identify myself with this brother of mine. Then the thought came to me of the terrible thing that I was doing. And I pressed my hand in his, hand to hand. And so on for all of the other lepers in the camp. Because of the sacrament of confirmation, I have to love all mankind. And as a priest, I have to identify myself with them. This identification you can carry over into your own life if you keep before you the symbol of fire. Fire has two great qualities, light and heat. The light is the symbol of truth. The heat is the symbol of love. Too often we separate light and heat. We have the truth, but we have little zeal and love. The enemies have no truth, but they have zeal and love for their cause. Confirmation would bid us to keep our truth and the love of truth together. And that's what our Lord meant when he said, I have come to cast fire, fire upon the earth, and what will I but that it be in
0: kindles. God love. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host Al Smith and I want to thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And I think we all will agree that we just can't uh, sit on our hands anymore after hearing that talk on confirmation. It's that call to the laity to be involved, to uh, be uh, someone who puts our faith in action, and of course to defend the truth. And so, uh, quite inspiring message. And uh, I know personally... I'm going to re-listen to this talk because um, there was so much contained in it. And I think we sometimes don't really take, uh, you know, the idea of our confirmation seriously. I think a lot of us kind of went through the motions and um, kind of guilty of that. But you can see where Fulton Sheen is saying we can, you know, ask for the grace of that sacrament. That the Holy Spirit be enkindled in our hearts to to animate us in a very uh, active way to engage the culture and to share our faith. And so we are soldiers for Christ. My dear friends, again, thank you for joining me. May I invite you to visit my humble little website called BishopSheenToday.com. I've tried to find as many videos as I could and audio recordings and books and make them available to you Uh, so you can enjoy the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Again, that website is bishopsheentoday.com. And a reminder of the book recommendation I've been sharing, uh, Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, available through Sophia Institute Press, a great publisher of Catholic books. You can find them on the web at sophiainstitute.com. And, of course, wherever fine books are sold. And so uh, if you visit the website of SophiaInstitute.com, they're offering us a 25% discount when we use the promo code SHEEN25 when we check out. And, of course, that's a discount for any books that you purchase from Sophia Institute Press. May you have a great week, my friends. And until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.